Welcome to the Climate Capital Podcast, where we interview founders who are solving the most difficult and important decarbonization problems in the world. Climate Capital, across our funds and our syndicate, is one of the most active funders of early-stage climate tech globally. This episode is led by Jenny, the GP of Climate Capital's BioFund. Today, we are delighted to have Paul, the founder and CEO of ConceptBio, a biotech startup developing probiotics for plants in soilless agriculture with us. Welcome, Paul. Great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me, Jenny. Absolutely. To get us started, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm French-Dutch. Uh, I'm almost entirely scientific by, by background. So uh, I, uh, I did biochemistry for my undergraduate, did a master's in, in systems biology, and then I did a PhD at, at Oxford in plant microbe interaction. So looking at how, how we can use microbes to improve the growth of plants and sustainability of agriculture. And, and that's what led to a roundabout process to, to concert bio, where obviously we're applying that in a slightly different context to what I did for my PhD, which is soilless agriculture systems. And where did you grow up? So that's a very long story. Um, I actually, <laughs> my, my dad worked for, for Shell, the big oil company. Um, so there's, there's a whole redemption arc there that we can go into. Uh, and so we, we moved around an awful lot when I was growing up. So I think between the ages of, of zero and 12, I moved on average more than every two years. So I grew up wow. yeah, a lot in, in Southeast Asia. I spent some time in, uh, in Brazil as well. Um, several years in, in Ukraine as well, and then a little bit of time in, in Europe. And now I finally settled in the UK uh, on, on the wrong side of Brexit. <laughs> and why building your company in the UK? It's a very good question. So I think the, the reason for me has been that the UK really does have an, an amazing community in terms of biotech experience. There's there's nowhere else in Europe that's, that's anything like it. Uh, and so the, the talent pool that we can draw on here is is really world class. And that's been a huge factor for us to, to build this. Um, and then the other part of it is that we're, we're quite well positioned here between the US and, and Europe. And so we can service both both markets from the UK. Uh, and in Europe, of course, we've got the Netherlands, which is arguably the, the most advanced soilless agriculture market in, in the world. You know, I've talked to people as far away as Hawaii, who will say, yes, the Dutch, they know what they're doing. Um, and, and so being able to, to hop across the channel and, and work with them has, has been uh, a huge opportunity for us. That makes a lot of sense. You have a very interesting upbringing and background. How did that influence your decision to become an entrepreneur, transitioning from becoming a scientist? A very good question. I, I don't know to what extent my, my background influenced it, although I'm, I'm sure it did. I think for me, even when I started my PhD, my, my plan was still, you know, I want to be as good of a scientist as, as I can be. And, and that's all I really care about. And I think somewhere along the line in those four years at Oxford, that, that changed. And I think the first thing that made me realize that maybe academia and, and pure science was, was not for me mm. is that I, uh, I organized a team in this, this international bio nanotechnology competition called, called Biomod. Uh, and, and making that happen required hiring a team, doing lots of fundraising so they could, they could do the science, making sure that they had a place to sleep, making sure that they had a lab mm. to, to do the work in. This was a team of undergraduates. And then, of course, sending them off to, to, to San Francisco for the, the finale. 
Um, and that was incredibly difficult. Uh, and there were several times where the team thought it's, it's all over. We're not going to get last space. It's all over. We're not going to get funding. It's all over. No one's going to pay for us to, to go to San Francisco. Uh, and, and somehow making it all the way through that, I think this was the first experience that I had of like, okay, I like science, but I like this even more. Uh, and, and that was really quite a, a mini startup. Um, so I think that was when I, I first got started. And then I think for me, the, the final break, was probably actually the the, the COVID pandemic. Um, mm. I, I still vividly remember, you know, we, we all got thrown out of the lab. The lab was the entire department was shut, so no one could could do any science anymore. Mm. Uh, and we had our, our very first meeting as a you know as the academic group that I was part of at Oxford, and we all went around the, the Zoom call of like, okay, what are you going to do during the pandemic? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Uh, and you know, we're saying, okay, well, I've got this paper that I'd like to finish. I've got a bit of data here that I'd still like to analyze. Um, and, and then they got to me and I was like, well, guys, you know, there's, there's a massive pandemic on there. We're all scientists. We got to, we got to find something to do, to, do to, to help. That was, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and and mm-hmm. I ended up setting up a, a COVID testing lab in the department. And I think that was the final, the, the, the final point at which it was like, okay, I'm clearly not like these people and I cannot spend the rest <laughs> of my life, you know, thinking about data when there's a global pandemic on. I think that was the, the, the final barrier to cross for me. That's, that's fascinating, Paul. And how did a COVID testing lab Turn into ConcertBio. The way I came to ConcertBio is uh, a lot of it did, did come from my PhD. So the whole PhD was looking at how do we use microbes in, in soil to help plants grow, which is something that it's a field that's developed in the last 10 years or so, maybe 15 years. And there's been a lot of success stories in, in that area. And we really do have a good understanding now of how microbes can help plants in soil. And, and there have been you know big success stories like PivotBio and, and AgBio. And we've done great things with that. But all of that has been focused entirely on traditional soil agriculture. And, and particularly in the last year or so of my PhD, my, my supervisor and I, you know, we would talk every week. Um, and we, we kept hearing about this thing called soilless agriculture, you know, these greenhouses mm. that were, it was really taking off, you know, there was going to be the future of agriculture. Uh, and, and we were scientists and we were just curious, like, you know, soil is normally where all the good microbes come from and plants must have microbes. And they don't have soil. So what's going on there? You know, don't, don't they have a big problem if they don't have soil? And so I, I finished my, my PhD and I joined a, a program called Entrepreneur First. And, and I essentially spent three months just cold emailing lots and lots of, of greenhouse growers and vertical farmers and saying, Hey, I'm, I'm Paul. I have a PhD in plant microbe interactions. Do you want to talk to someone who has a PhD in plant microbe interactions? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there was just this overwhelming response of like, ah, yes. Dr. Rutten, finally, someone has come to talk to me about this and, and it's a big problem for us and we would really like to have microbes to, to do something about this situation, but everyone just keeps selling us bleach or they sell us microbes that are meant to help plants in soil and they just do nothing for us. And, and I'm getting really frustrated about this, but I, I still believe in there being something here. Um, and and that those three months of, of lots of cold emails and lots of conversations was, was really what led to Concert Bio. I realized that there was a, a problem here that uh, that really needed solving and and obviously my background mm. is a great fit for it um and i'm dutch which which also helps there i think the <laughs> uh, there that uh, that helps with this market uh, i didn't think that would be the the key selling point after a phd in plant microbe interactions but it's part of it it works out it works out. out what exactly is soilless agriculture so soilless agriculture which is also often called hydroponic agriculture is um is a relatively new form of growing plants has been developed over the last 30 years or so and the the big difference between this and traditional agriculture is as the name implies there is no soil anywhere in the system so 
the way the plants are grown, um, if you look at leafy greens, for example, is their roots are just sitting in a nutrient solution, a liquid that provides them with all of the, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, the other micro and macronutrients that the plants need to, to grow. And the beauty of this is there's, there's several nice things. One of them is that uh, because it's indoors, you can grow plants every day of the year. So lettuce, normally you can only grow for six months or so in, in the year. And in a hydroponic mm-hmm. system, every single day of the year, they harvest and they, they plant lettuce. So that's a big advantage there. The other big advantage is that, ironically, if you walk into one of these these farms, um, you, there's, there's, you know, like pools of water as far as the eye can, can see. There's tens of millions of liters of water that these plants are sitting in. But it's actually an extremely water efficient form of growing plants, because if you think about traditional soil agriculture, you spray your, your, your plants with water and then that water drains away into the soil and then you have to spray again and again and again and again. And in right. a hydroponic system, it's a closed loop. So you add water once and it just goes round and round and you only lose a very small amount to, you know, the plants transpiring and, and that's it. So ultimately you use 3%, 5% of the water that you'd normally wow. use for traditional agriculture. It's, it's incredibly efficient. Um, but the biggest thing that has really driven this industry is that between the, the good water use efficiency and the fact that it's indoors, it's very, very climate resilient. So it doesn't matter if there is a 500 year drought going on, which is what we had in, in Europe just last summer. It doesn't matter if there's a 500 year storm going on or hail or who knows what. The plants are indoors. You can control the environment and so you can keep growing in a way that is in for a lot of these guys not possible in, in soil anymore. Uh, so that's really the thing that's been driving this industry because a lot of people you know, can't grow plants the way that they've been growing it with the way climate change is, is affecting them. So why don't we grow more plants through soilless agriculture? Is it a hard thing to do that needs certain expertise? So it, it does require quite a lot of expertise. And, and famously, the Dutch are the people in the world that everyone turns to for, for this sort of industry. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. And the, the reason the Netherlands has really taken off here, I think, is um, for them, it wasn't so much climate. For a lot of other people, it's been climate. For the Dutch, it's a very, very small country. They have very little space. And so they needed the most efficient form of agriculture possible. And so they've really invested for almost 30, if not 40 years now in soilless agriculture. And so as a result of that, the Netherlands is the second largest agricultural exporter in the world. And it's a tiny, tiny country that you can barely find on the map. But the yield per unit area, such an efficient form of agriculture that they can really produce on a, on a massive scale. I think the, the biggest thing that has been slowing the industry down up to this point is that, you know, if until as it's becoming clear what, what climate change is doing, there wasn't really a need yet to go into soilless agriculture. Mm. Um, but now that need is becoming very, very clear. And I think there have also been just advances in, in the technology that have made it much, much easier for people to, to start doing this. Um, and the yield of it you know, per, per unit area um, has, has exploded dramatically. And what problem is your solution solving for the soilless agriculture industry? Yeah, absolutely. So the big problem that we're solving is that just like human beings have a gut microbiome, we have this community of microbes inside us that's very important for our health. Plants also have a community of microbes. They also have a, a gut microbiome. For them, their gut is their their roots. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just as important for, for them. In fact, um, microbes are actually much, much more important for, my, for, for plants than they are for human beings. If you, you know, as a scientist, when we think about microbes on plants, we actually like to think about plants as meta-organisms because there's such an integration between the plants and the microbes that it's, it's often hard to see 
where one begins and the other one ends. Um, and so in soilless agriculture, what you have is a system where the environment has been perfectly optimized. You know, the level of nitrogen is perfect. The level of phosphorus is perfect. Um, the level of oxygen in the water is perfect. You know, all these, these chemical and environmental factors are perfect. But microbially speaking, it's, it's a terrible, terrible system. These plants are very mm-hmm. microbially deprived. And so, and, and this problem, to be fair, if you don't, if you don't know better, it can be tricky to realize the extent of this problem because you know, if you've got a system that is so optimized in so many ways, you do get very good plant growth. It, it, they do grow quite well. But what you don't realize is how much better they should be growing if you did actually get the right microbes in there. So to give you an example, you know, we did an experiment over the just just this summer where we did the equivalent of a, a gut microbiome transplant. So we took an entire community of microbes and we added it into one of these hydroponic systems. And we saw a yield improvement of 57%, which, you know, just to give you an idea, if you talk to a grower and you say, I, I would like to sell you a microbe, how, how much of a yield improvement does this microbe need to produce for it to be an interesting product? And they'll say, wow, you know, like half a percentage point improvement, one percentage point improvement would be, would be a good product. If you can achieve a 10% improvement, that would be spectacular. So, you know, the, the level of performance that is essentially being left on the table by these guys because they don't have good microbes is is huge. And that's the problem that we're solving. Wow, there's so much room for improvement for yes. agriculture in this space. Yeah. But is, is there anything surprising about what you do or soilless agriculture that most people don't know? The thing that I found, and I think the, the industry is to blame for this, to be fair, a lot of a lot of what soilless agriculture has has marketed itself as is, you know, we are a controlled indoor growing environment. We're very, very clean. Um, and, and I think some of them have even gone so far as to say, you know, we have an almost sterile system. There's no microbes anywhere in our system. Uh, it, it's, it's when you talk to the vertical farmers, actually. So famously, if you look at pictures of, of vertical farms online and you see pictures of, of, a, of a worker in a vertical farm or in a greenhouse, they'll be wearing almost a hazmat suit, you know, all clean, they have booties, and they have gloves and all that. And if you talk to the vertical farms themselves, they'll tell you, yeah, yeah. That, that's only when the photographers come by. Then, you know, we make it look good. We've got to show the part. It's all clean. And so as a result of that, and I think this is part of the problem, it's part of the reason that the industry um, still has not addressed this is that they've gone so out of their way to create this public image to the world that oh, we're a very clean industry, there's no microbes here, there's no E. coli, no salmonella, it's all very clean. And and it just isn't, you know, we've done lots of testing in these systems, and there's plenty of microbes there. But it's created this perception that the solution here is to get rid of all the microbes. The solution isn't to add microbes, it's to get rid of all the microbes. And actually, famously, if you try to grow a plant without any microbes, it will die. Plants cannot survive without microbes there. And, and I've actually heard anecdotally stories about growers who have really gone all in on sterilizing their system, get rid of all the microbes, because that's that's the thing that you're meant to do. And then just nothing grows. It's It's all completely dead. So I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned that I think people need to learn about this industry is that they like to talk about how clean they are, but actually they need more microbes, not less microbes. Mm. We tend to think of bacteria and microbes as something that's bad for us, but actually there are a lot of good microbes out there that do hard work for us on a day-to-day basis that we don't even think about. Well, you've been very successful since you founded ConceptBio. So ConceptBio have, for example, collected the largest database of plant microbiome data in soilless agriculture in the world. 
And now you're using AI models to turn those data into microbial products for growers. Mm-hmm. You were also selected as one of the Forbes 30 and 30 in Europe. So congratulations on that. Thank you. A common perception of building a deep tech company is that it requires a lot of capital and is capex mm-hmm. intensive. How do you think about the capital stack that you are utilizing to build concert bio? That's a good question. I think no doubt we are more expensive, obviously, than than uh, a group of coders sitting in a in an office or in a basement somewhere. I think um, what's been very helpful for us, and I think this is an advantage that we have that a company working on just just code doesn't have, is uh, particularly here in the UK, there has been a lot of government support. There is a lot of government funding available for deep mm. tech companies. So, you know, we've we've gotten over four million pounds, which is over five million dollars in grant funding from the UK government to to do what we do. So, on the one hand, we are more expensive, but there is also a lot more support. And I think the the other thing that's been very helpful for for us is particularly here in London. Um, at the moment, you know, a lot of this infrastructure has been built for us already. So even a few years ago, if I if I talk to other biotech founders here, um, what they would have to do in the past when they were expanding and they needed more lab space is they would have had to buy, you know, buy and build their own lab from scratch. They would have had to rent an office space somewhere, ask nicely and turn that into a lab. And that's a six month, multi-million dollar project. Uh, but then over the last few years, you know, real estate agents and, and, and re- the real estate industry has realized, okay, there was a lot of demand for last space. Let's build it out and then companies can, can get into it. Uh, and so as we've been looking over the last couple of months, for example, for last space to expand into, we found that it is available. We almost certainly will not have to build our own lab space, which is, you know, that's many millions and, and many sleepless nights that we are not going to have to go through because this, this has been built for us. So. It, it is more expensive than, than software, certainly, but the support that is there really helps a lot with keeping the, the capital requirements low. Five millions of grant money is a lot of money from the UK yes. government. Yes, it is. What was your strategy to be so successful in securing that money? Would you share that with our listeners? Ooh, I don't know if I can say that we, uh, we have a particular strategy. I think, um, it's it's mostly just been about, and I think this is an advantage that we have. We are we are deep tech, of course, but we've we've been able to already start working with with growers, and you know we have people paying us for the things that we provide, which is just collecting this data so far. Because you know we collect this data to develop our probiotics, but we also give it back to the growers in the form of a dashboard, which lets them understand a bit more about their microbiome. And so as a result, I think it's been easier for us to show. That there is a need for this thing. We are not just a bunch of scientists in a lab. And five years from now, we maybe will go and talk to a customer. We're talking to customers every week, almost every day. We we talk to customers, and I think that's been a big part. Whenever we look at our grant applications and and the feedback that we get on them, of showing you know people do do want this, and and being able to show that in these applications um, has been very very helpful. And I think to be honest as well. Over the last few years, the UK government has realized, and I think a lot of Europe has realized, that that horticulture, sort of soilless agriculture, indoor agriculture, is a big part of, of the future of, of agriculture. And so there has been a big push just in the time that I've started this company, which is 18 months ago, to to fund companies working in this space. And I think we've we've ridden on the back of that. Uh, so there is a, a part of it is, is luck and, and good timing on our part. 
How do you balance your time between getting grant money, doing fundraising for the company, and also managing the R and D and business development for the company? That's a lot of balls to juggle, Paul. It, it, it is a lot of balls to juggle, yeah. And uh, I think um, I, I don't know how I was managing it until so about about midway through this year, we actually uh, we we hired the ex chief of staff of Ochre Bio, which is another big uh, big biotech company here in the UK. Uh, and she has been amazing in terms of managing the the grants and, and that sort of thing because um, grant funding is is great and non dilutive obviously but the amount of overhead in in paperwork that needs to be filled out and government audits that we need to deal with is, is very substantial. Um, so there there have been times where we've really wondered as a team, oh my god, you know it's a lot of free money, but is it really worth it? Because we're about to spend two weeks just doing doing this this audit. But uh, I think just. Just being able to rely on on the team as well, I think, has has been very very helpful. Um, I've gone out mm-hmm. of my way to hire people who are very experienced and, and have experience with you know working in biotech. Darren used to lead the commercial sequencing facility at the Natural History Museum here in London, so it's it's not his first grant. Uh, it's not Stacy's first grant. It's our, our principal plant microbiome scientist, and I think that's been very helpful. But I think there was definitely the first six months or so of the company. Um, I think probably. It, it would be close to one day a week that I would just spend on dealing with with grant related matters, and then three days a week on on R and D, and then another day a week of of talking to customers and, and managing those relationships. Thank you for sharing that. From being a PhD scientist to becoming the founder and CEO of Concebio, what is that transition like for you personally? When I first started started working on the company, the level of uncertainty just seemed unbelievable, and I couldn't possibly deal with it. And I realized, like, okay, I just don't have enough information. Let's just build the company, get more information, and then and then we'll reassess. Uh, and now now we've been at it for you know about two years, and now it feels like, oh, okay, I've got a little bit of information now, so maybe I could start answering some of those questions. And then and then I get much more worried about the uncertainty again. And I've realized, like, nope, we still don't have enough information. Shut up, keep building the company, and we'll, uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll revisit. Uh, so I think that's that's been a big one, and I think as well, if if I can if I can say without sounding too too facetious, uh, I think during my PhD at, at Oxford, I I felt like I could do everything that I would do. I felt like I could do a good job of, and I could take the time and make sure that I got near hundred percent on on everything. Um, whereas in a startup, there just isn't the time. If I try to do everything. Even if I try to get everything to ninety percent, I would just crash and burn in in a month. So mm. I have to become f- comfortable with like, okay, we're going to eighty twenty almost everything. There are some things where we're going to do almost no work, and it's going to be we're going to do a, a hack job of it, but it's fine. It doesn't need to be better. And this this sort of getting used to this idea of like, yep, yeah, just do the do the minimum for a lot of things. Don't insist on doing good for for most things. That's been a, a big transition for for me as well. And then I think finally as well, although this one has been easier than I thought it would be, transitioning away from from the science. So, you know, I, I actually have never set foot in the lab and, and done lab work. We, I, I had Darren set up the entire lab. I went straight from just doing lab work full time to doing no lab work at all. And I thought I would be less comfortable with that than I am. But actually being able to just do scientific strategy and talking to the team about what they will do in the lab rather than doing it myself, uh, that's that's been a transition, but one that I've actually found quite enjoyable. I think I was uh, I, I enjoy lab work, but I enjoy scientific strategy making more than I enjoy lab work. Is there anything you would do differently looking back? 
I think I would worry about the uncertainty a lot less. Um, <laughs> I think that was definitely, I, uh, I, I did spend far too much time worrying about answering questions that were just not answerable and are still not answerable mm. and may not be answerable for, for years yet. So I think that would be a, a big one. Part of my transition has, has also been that, you know, I was used to working at, at Oxford under a supervisor. I had my professor who I would report to every week and I would present my work to him and, and he would judge my work. And obviously he was a world-class expert in, in the area. And so he, he could really judge my work very well. And I think when I first started, I treated investors in a similar way. Like, okay, you know, they, they've done lots of startups. They know exactly what they're doing. I can present my work to them and they can judge it. And obviously that, that's not really how this works. I, they, they, they can't judge. Certainly the science, for example, is just impossible for them to judge. I, I have to be the judge of my own performance ultimately and, and the customers to some extent. So I think worrying less and, and treating investors less as my supervisor and as more, <laughs> more maybe as an advisor uh, mm. is, is, a, is something that I would do differently going back. What has been the most helpful piece of advice you received as as founder so far? Oh, I've received so so many pieces of advice, um, and and a lot of it has been good. A lot of it has also been bad, but a lot of it has uh, has been good. So we one of our one of our investors, um, Nucleus Capital in in Germany. I remember having having breakfast with with them in London a few weeks after they invested, and and Max over there really sat me down. It was like, right, Paul. We've invested. You're starting on this company. I'm going to lay down some wisdom here. Uh, and I think one of the things that he said was that the first 10 people that you hire have to be superstars, every single one of them. I don't care how long it takes you, how much you have to obsess over hiring. Every one of them must be great. Mm. Uh, and, and that is something that I have, I have stuck to ever since. Uh, and that's been very painful because we always feel like there's not enough people here because it takes us a long time to make every single hire. Uh, but I, I definitely do not regret that one, one bit, even though. Even just today, it still feels like we don't have enough people and we're taking a long time to make every hire. But that's that's been a piece of advice that um, I think has been hugely helpful and that I would pass on to everyone else as well. Thank you. Last but certainly not the least, is there anything we or our audience can help you going forward as you build Concept Bio? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's there's two big things that that spring to mind. I think the first one is that, uh, and I know this is in in a lot of ways, uh, you know, very few people know soilless agriculture growers. But if you know people in in that area, we would love to talk to them. We we have, like I mentioned, we have several government grants that actually let us work with growers free of charge to, to do this sort of microbiome analytics for them. So we're always looking for for more people to work with. And then I think the the other part of it is that as we look ahead to the next two years or so of, of the company, obviously at the moment, all we think about is how do we build a product that, that people want? And then eventually we're gonna have to think about how do we produce that product and market that product and, and get it out on the, onto the market. And so we're starting to think about the team that is going to be, that's going to need to be in place that, to, to accomplish that next stage. So if, if you are, or if you know someone who has experience of, of putting a microbial product on the market, uh, particularly in the ag space, then we would we would love to talk to you or to this person that you know, uh, and and get them on board as as an advisor, um, or even maybe steal them for for the team if uh, if they're at that sort of stage. Absolutely. Well, it's been a delight to have you, Paul, today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jenny. It's been great. Thank you to everybody for listening today. If you'd like to learn more about our conversation or to get involved with the work that Climate Capital is doing, you can check out our website, climatecapital.co. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time.